those of you who have been driving for some time, surely you know by now that there are some basic understood rules of the road that are applicable almost everywhere unless there is a sign that indicates otherwise. One particular rule of the road is that you are free to turn right at a red light. For the most part, unless you see a sign that says otherwise, you are free to turn right on red. But let me ask you this. Just because you have the freedom to do so, does that mean you should in any and every situation? What if there is a big diesel truck barreling through the intersection? Do you turn? No. You know that that though you have the freedom to turn on red, you have to yield. To oncoming traffic. So though you're free to turn, there are times you shouldn't because of others. There's a great biblical principle here for us, and it's this. Just because it is lawful does not make it right in any and every circumstance. As Christians, we have a lot of freedoms. There are certain activities that the Bible either remains silent on or even at times permits. But like I explained just a moment ago, though we are free to do it, doesn't mean we should whenever we feel like it. And the reason why is because of what that might mean for other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, some will hear this and they'll say, who cares? That's their problem. I'm free to do it, therefore, I'm going to do it whenever and wherever I feel like it. Many of us respond like Abel's brother Cain in Genesis 4 when he said, am I my brother's keeper? Many of us think in this way. We think, why do I have to worry about so-and-so's hang-ups? That's that's his problem. It's not my hang-up. I have a freedom to do it, and I'm going to do it whenever and wherever I feel like it, and they're just going to have to get over it. Listen, here's the problem with this logic. The problem with this logic is Scripture tells us we are our brothers and sisters keepers. We are. Think about the responsibility that God has left for us, His people. We have been called by God to seek out followers of him and when the lost are found we have been called to disciple them as believers we are called to pray for one another to edify one another to build one another up to sharpen one another and to teach and to train one another Paul tells us in this chapter that we're going to look at this morning that that at times we are even supposed to refrain from certain activities out of a love for one another. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. This morning we are going to cover this entire chapter of 13 verses. As I told you several weeks ago when we began chapter 7, that in this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing questions that have been sent to him by the Corinthians. Okay, In the first part of this book, he is correcting things that he has observed without their help. 
But beginning in chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the matters by which you wrote to me. So he begins in chapter 7 and he continues in chapter 8 in the, in the following chapters as well, addressing questions that the Corinthians have sent him. In chapter 7, remember they ask him questions about relationships. Paul writes all about relationships in chapter 7. He talks about being married, being divorced, being single, being widowed. And in chapter 8, he starts in on a new issue altogether. And he tells us what this issue is at the very beginning of chapter 8 in verse 1. Look at what he says. He says, now concerning food offered to idols. This right here was a hot topic in Christian circles in the first century. So much so that Paul spends all of this chapter, chapter 9 and chapter 10, discussing this issue. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Three chapters? Dealing with idol sacrifices? Are you kidding me? I mean, some of you are thinking, I may just cut out for the next several weeks because how in the world does this apply to me? Listen, this is very important. I want you to understand this. Though this specific issue may be irrelevant to us, the principles that we're going to draw out of this issue are as pertinent as applicable and as appropriate as any principles you will find in the scriptures. By examining this particular issue in Corinth, we are going to be able to see general principles for Christian liberty that, that, that can apply to every Christian at any period of time anywhere. In our chapter for today, Paul is going to teach us how to respond when it comes to morally gray issues. Issues like, is it okay to listen to secular music? Is it okay to watch TV? Is it okay to, for, for adults to have a beer or wine with dinner? Is it okay to eat pork? Is it okay to watch PG-13 and some R-rated movies? Is it okay to have caffeine? I sure hope so on the last one, because... I'd be in trouble. I love my coffee. But we're going to talk about it, okay? So, so in the following chapters, especially here in chapter 8, Paul is going to provide some excellent insight when it comes to how to respond when facing these gray issues. Now, before we start our text, before we jump in, let me give you a little background information that, that will help you better understand this specific issue in Corinth. As we've explained already, Corinth was a part of Greek culture. And one thing many of you know, if you've ever studied Greek culture, is that the Greeks were polytheistic and polydemonistic. They believed in many gods and they believed in many evil spirits. Their entire life was just interlaced with the two. There was a God behind, for, there was a God for every activity and behind every problem they experienced in life, an evil spirit was to blame. And because the spirit world was very much a part of their culture. The Greeks did all they could to appease these evil spirits. One thing they did in particular, because uh, uh, they, were, they were fearful of being possessed by evil spirits, is they, they offered their food to the gods as sacrifices. The pagan priests taught that, that the evil spirits wanted to gain entrance into the body. And one way they did this was by attaching themselves to the food people ate. Now that sounds strange, but that's what they believed. 
Basically, they believed that an evil spirit would come down, attach itself to your juicy piece of big, big piece of steak, and uh, when you ate it, you would be possessed by that spirit. So what the pagan priests would do was in response, they would offer up a meaty sacrifice to one of the many Greek gods to appease him or her to prevent these evil spirits from possessing people, all right? You got that? Just a little context that'll help you out a little bit. And the meat was divided into three parts, okay? The first part was burned up on the altar. The second part was was kept by the priests to eat and the leftovers were donated to the marketplace where vendors would sell this meat at a reduced price. So in that day, if you wanted to go get yourself a big, inexpensive steak, you went to the marketplace and you bought meat that had been handled by the pagan priests during these ceremonies. And this issue of whether or not to eat this meat used by pagan priests became a major issue in the Corinthian church. You had one group who had probably been with Paul from the start, who had, who had been saved for some time, who were somewhat mature spiritually. I like to call them the pro-meat guys. And uh, they were saying, eat up, enjoy. And I know it isn't anything anyways. So eat, whatever kind of meat you want to eat. You're free to do so. Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, it's what goes out. So you're free to eat it all. Enjoy. And they were very vocal group. And they looked very critically at others who did not share their view on this. Well, you had another group, probably made up of mostly new Christians, who had not been separated too long from their pagan past, who just couldn't handle it. I mean, it was killing them in their conscience to eat meat that had been used in these pagan practices. And they wanted to completely separate themselves from anything and everything that had to do with it. So you got this tension here. And they're writing to Paul, what should we do? Paul writes back in chapter 8 to address this issue. So for the rest of our time here, what I want to do is I want to look at the reasons given by the pro-meat people in Corinth on why it's okay for them to eat meat offered to idols. And then I want to examine Paul's response so that we can better understand what our response is to be when it comes to exercising our Christian liberty. The first reason the Corinthians give is this. Corinthian reason number one. What I'm doing is not forbidden in Scripture. That's what the Corinthians were saying. What I'm doing is not unbiblical. And we love to use this excuse as well, don't we? People love it when they have a verse, don't they? You know what I mean? You'll see them do something that's a little off and you'll kind of call them on it. They're like, "Uh uh-uh, I got a verse. John this, Ephesians that, I can do it. We love it when we have a verse. And the Corinthians were the same way. They had a verse. In other words... They knew that eating meat offered to idols was no big deal. It wasn't forbidden by God, therefore it must be fine to do. Well, Paul comes in and he agrees with them on the first part. He basically gives them credit for having some knowledge on the matter. He says in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now notice right off the bat that phrase, all of us possess knowledge in your Bibles, is in quotations. 
the quotations was added by the translators and the reason why is because it seems as if Paul is quoting the Corinthians here more than likely this was their specific argument to Paul they were saying we are knowledgeable of the things of God we know all there is to know about this particular issue we know there's nothing wrong with it eating food offered to idols is no big deal so they were they were knowledgeable they knew this issue and this issue alone was not a big issue for God but but the problem with the Corinthians is on top of being knowledgeable they were very arrogant and ungracious and unloving toward those unenlightened believers you probably know people like this today don't name any names but you do people who know what the Bible says about everything and they love to point out things you don't know and they do so in a very demeaning and condescending way so what was going on in Corinth but notice how Paul responds he again he agrees with them but then he goes on to show them where they've missed the boat he says though what you're doing is not forbidden in Scripture what you are doing is unloving it's unloving the way you're handling this situation is unloving he says great you have knowledge I'll give you that but what about love what about love though he admits that knowledge is important he also informs them it's not the end all he says you need more than that you need love look at the end of verse 1 Paul says this knowledge puffs up but what does love do love builds up knowledge in and of itself puffs up and that's the issue with the Corinthians they were puffed up they thought they had it all together spiritually and they were arrogant and prideful about it Paul says though you're right doctrinally you're way off relationally therefore your knowledge has done nothing for you it has done nothing but has made but, but made you arrogant and proud so Paul is clear here that though knowledge is essential without love it's empty it's nothing this is not the only place he makes this point, is it? Flip over to 1 Corinthians 13, 1. What Paul says there. You're familiar with this verse. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You ever heard a gong? Really doesn't add a whole lot, does it? Just noise. It's nothing really. The same is true of a Christian with a lot of knowledge and little love. Paul's point in this passage is for God's people to be the kind of people that he has called them to be, they must be strong both doctrinally and relationally. Believers, we must be both. We must have a balance of knowledge and love. Just browbeating people with what you know and unlovingly exercising your freedom in front of them to the point of offending them is hateful and it's unfruitful it is Paul says instead of being unloving instead of unlovingly imparting knowledge and exercising your freedom balance your knowledge with love look at what he goes on to say in verse 2 if anyone imagines that he knows something he does not yet know as he ought to know but if anyone loves God he is known by God again though Paul gives props to their knowledge 
in verse 1 and verse 2 he tells them tells the Corinthians though they are somewhat knowledgeable they still are lacking in that area because they know nothing about love he says if you had true knowledge you would know how important love really is when it comes to morally gray issues it's not enough just to say we've studied the Bible and, and, and we know what the Bible says on the issue so it, or it doesn't say anything at all, so we're just going to partake no matter what, whenever and wherever we feel like it. Paul says just because you know something isn't evil, just because certain activities are not forbidden in Scripture does not mean you can just plow ahead without considering others. Believers, same goes for us. We are not only to be concerned with what is lawful, but also with how our actions are going to affect other believers. We have to consider others. So Paul's first point is that when deciding what to do and what not to do in any given situation, after asking, is what I'm doing lawful, we must ask, is it loving? And we must at times allow love to limit our liberties. That's a principle that Paul's going to come back to over and over and over again. Allow your love for one another to limit your liberties. Number two, the second reason the pro-meat crowd were freely exercising their freedom is because they believed what I'm doing is no big deal to God. It's no big deal. Look at verse 4. Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no one, no, no God but one. Once again, notice the phrases in quotations in your Bible. These are reasons that are given by the Corinthians on why they should be able to exercise their freedom and eat food offered to idols according to them the reason it's okay to eat food that's been offered to idols is because an idol is nothing it doesn't really exist because there's only one true and living god verse 4 can literally be translated in this way we know that there is no such thing in the whole world as an idol about seven years ago leslie and i went on a mission trip to brazil and several times while we were there, we came across an offering on the ground that people had offered to one of the local spirits or one of the local gods, and it was normally a, a bowl of fruit, and it was surrounded by candles. And that fruit, a lot of that fruit had been sitting there for so long, it was rotting. It was, being just, it was just infested with fruit flies and other insects. You know why? Because nobody's home. Nobody's home. They had offered it to no one, and they had appeased no one. Why? Because there is only one true and living God who is sovereign, who we need to be concerned with, living our life to please. The Christians at Corinth are making a similar argument here, and there's good theology to what the Corinthians are saying. They're basically saying, if these gods do not exist, then the food offered up by the pagan priest is really being offered to no one. So if that's the case, then why not eat? It's just cheap meat. That's pretty good theology by the Corinthians. It really is. They said in verse 5, although there, are, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, they say, we know, verse 6, there is one God, the Father, 
before whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So they're arguing, though the unbelieving world around us believes in many gods, we know there is only one God, the Father, and one Lord, the Lord Jesus, who made us and sustains us. Therefore, what's the big deal? Why can't we just eat? Once again, that's great theology. And Paul agrees. Idols are nothing. Therefore, pagan priests are offering sacrifices to nothing to appease no one because there is only one true and living God. But notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. Paul says, though you're spot on doctrinally, and though you're correct that eating meat offered to idols is nothing, it's no big deal. Here's Paul's response. Though that's the case, what you are doing is a big deal to some. It is a big deal to certain believers. He says in verse 7 that there are some who still view idols as a big deal and want to completely withdraw from any and everything associated with them. And, And for those of you in here who have little sympathy for people like that, who have these sort of hang ups and just can't get over them, and maybe you're feeling this way toward these lesser mature Christians in Corinth, let me paint a little picture for you. Maybe this will help you out. Let's say you have a middle-aged man who's been living in a pagan world for most of his life, for 40 years or more. Ever since he can remember, he's been surrounded by paganism. God's everywhere, up and down the streets, all over his house, growing up. And, and for this point, up to this point in his, in his life, for over 40 years, this is all he's ever known. He's worshipped them. He's seen people worship them. He's seen catastrophes happen that have been attributed to these gods. He's seen horrible, filthy, pagan orgies going on in the name of these gods. And up to this point, this has been this man's life. Then all of a sudden, God steps in and does a great work in this man's heart and life, and he gives his life to the Lord Jesus. And he is saved out of this godless existence, and he commits his life to the Lord. Then he makes a commitment that he is not going to have anything to do with that old, filthy, vile life ever again. And let's say a short period of time after that, a member from the church invites this guy over for dinner. And he serves meat. That's been handled by the pagan priests. And when he sees the hesitancy on this new believer's face, the the, the host responds with, don't worry, eat it up. An idol isn't anything anyways. They don't exist, so really this has been offered to no one. Though that new believer may understand that reasoning that idols are nothing, that they do not exist, what he may feel is something completely different. Because for so long, he's been in a world that's been so intimately involved with them. There has been too much involvement for him to simply say idols are nothing and believe it. He needs time to mature. It's going to take time to let go of a lifetime of false belief. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being defiled, their conscience being weak is defiled. Paul says, If the man who has a weak conscience eats, 
He will defile his conscience if he believes what he is doing is wrong. If conscience tells him not to do it, and then he sees all these other mature believers doing it, and he does it, and he's defiled his conscience, he could come away just feeling beat down and, and sinful and guilty and condemned. And Paul says, that's not good. It's not good. So Paul tells the pro-meat crowd that though they are right, that idols are nothing, therefore food offered to them is nothing more than cheap meat. He says, others may not be where you are, so back off and let these individuals live by conscience even if it's a bit restricting. You get that? That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, it's better to refrain than to be the cause of someone violating their own conscience. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, what if I don't know my audience? How do I know if it's okay for me to watch that TV show or, or listen to that song on the radio? Hey, how do I know? That's not, that's not going to offend another brother. Well, here's, here's, here's kind of what I live by. This is, this is my take on it here, and this is just me here. But you can jot this down. When in doubt, do without. It's pretty easy, right? When in doubt, do without. Because again, it's better to refrain than to partake and bring down another brother. Again, like we said in point number one, we need to be willing to let love for other believers limit our liberty. Here's the third point. Third question, the, the, the third uh, argument that the pro-meat crowd were, were giving for why they should be able to exercise this freedom. They say, what I'm doing is harmless. Look at verse 8. They reason, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. They were saying God doesn't care, once again, whether or not we eat meat or not. It, there, there's no harm in it. So whether we eat or don't eat the meat, it doesn't matter. It's harmless. It's a non-issue. Therefore, if it's tasty and enjoyable, why not eat? What's the difference? Look at how Paul responds in verses 9 and 10. He says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, so they were doing more than just getting it from the marketplace, right? We're going to talk about that a little later. Eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So, so Paul makes the point here, and in the following verses, though eating meat offered to idols may be harmless to you, exercising that freedom could be harmful for the lesser mature. Therefore, Paul says to those believers who are not bound by their conscience, you need to take care. You need to take alarm. You need to proceed with caution because if a weaker brother watches you eat, they might violate their conscience and eat as well. And notice what happens in verse 11. Paul says, And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Paul says, Because of your unloving display of freedom, the weaker person, the brother for whom Christ died, is destroyed. Now that word destroyed is also translated perish, in, in other translations, but that word does not mean they'll die and go to hell. That's not 
that it doesn't carry that sort of finality to it, that word. What Paul means here is, you're going to bring them down. You're going to crush them. You're going to force them to sin. Listen, when you force someone to violate their conscience, God loses a very important way to guide his child. Conscience is the doorkeeper that keeps us out of places we don't belong in yet. When our girls were babies and just becoming mobile, Leslie and I had to limit their room to move. And we did that by going throughout the house and and shutting the doors, keeping them out of rooms they were not old enough to enter into yet. But as they got older, we began to expand their limits and their liberties by opening more doors. Same is true in our spiritual life. It is. Starting out, the Holy Spirit sets greater limits on us to, to protect us. But as we grow, as we mature, God begins to expand what conscience will allow. So when we come in and say to another brother who has certain hang-ups and certain things, get over it. It's no big deal. Just do it. We're messing with the process of spiritual maturity. Who wants to get in the way of that? I know I don't. Instead, Paul calls for more mature believers to limit their liberties, limit what they view as lawful for the sake of others. Paul takes it a step further. Look at verse 12. He says, Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. What a statement. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because we as believers are one with Christ. When you force another believer to violate their conscience and you bring them to ruin, you have not just sinned against them, but you have sinned against Christ who is in them and who is one with them. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 40, Truly I say to you, as you do to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now having said all that, Paul ends with a great principle for God's people to adopt when it comes to morally gray issues. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Here Paul gives the principle when deciding what to do and what not to do. And the principle, again, is love. We are to allow love for our brothers and sisters to limit our liberty. When it comes down to it, may we be willing to do just that, believers. May we be willing to let love limit our liberty for the purpose of holding up, lifting up, and building up our brothers and sisters in Christ. This morning, I've been speaking primarily two believers in the audience. But in closing, I want to say a few words to those of you in here who maybe not, who are uh, not trusting in Christ for your salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, you know, I really don't need Paul nor anybody else telling me how to live my life. If I want to exercise my freedom, I can do that all by myself. I'll do it whenever and wherever. I don't need Paul to tell me the way I'm supposed to live and God to tell me the decisions that I'm supposed to make in any and every situation. 
Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm free to make those kind of decisions without God. Here's the truth of the matter. Living for yourself apart from God, failing to acknowledge Him and His ways is not true freedom. It's not. Scripture is clear that if you are driven by your own desires and are in hot pursuit of the pleasurable things of this world, though you may think I'm free, truth is you are in chains. You are enslaved. The one who cannot help but give in to the desires of the flesh and who cannot help but be duped by the allures of this world is a slave. And God tells us in His Word that those on this path will not find lasting happiness though they search for it thoroughly throughout the earth he also tells us that those on this path that they do not turn from their from their sins and turn over the reins of their life and make Jesus the Lord of their life they will remain enslaved in sin and will spend eternity apart from him scripture tells us time and time again that those who are truly free, those who are able to resist these desires and overcome these urges and live for God through the power of the Spirit, that's true freedom. That's the type of freedom that that, that is true and right, and that type of freedom is only found and experienced in and through a right relationship with the living God. If you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ for your salvation. I have news for you today. You are in chains. Though you think you're free, you're a slave to your own sinfulness. This is you today, though. I invite you to be free. God has given us the message of freedom. That's what what the gospel is. We sang about it earlier. Rescue for sinners. It's what Christ did. He came to rescue us from our sin and from, from a God who punishes sin justly this is you I invite you this morning let go of the reins of your life transfer your trust from yourself to the Lord Jesus so that you can begin this very day to experience true freedom from the rule of sin in your life would you pray with me